Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hashtag Houston HealthCast, a podcast powered by Houston HealthCare as part of our Hashtag Houston Healthy Initiative. My guests and I explore a wide variety of healthcare topics, advice, news, and updates so the people of Houston County, Georgia, and beyond can live a more Hashtag Houston Healthy lifestyle. On this episode, we're honoring National Diabetes Month by discussing the prevention and care of a major epidemic facing our community. We'll talk about what diabetes is, what symptoms to look out for, and what changes you can make to either avoid becoming diabetic or learn how to live and be healthy with your new diagnosis. Joining me today is Dr. Dylan Carroll. He's a physician specializing in internal medicine at Houston Internal Medicine Associates and Houston Healthcare. How are you doing today, Dr. Carroll? I'm doing well, Derek. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, so before we get on the topic of diabetes, I'd like for our listeners to learn more about you specifically. Uh, how long have you been practicing medicine? So I've been in on practice myself for now uh, just over a year. So we just hit our one-year mark okay. uh, last November, or the beginning of this November. Congratulations. Thank you. A year in practice. That's awesome. Uh, and has that been entirely with Houston Healthcare? Yep. Okay. Uh, was there, um, you know, kind of a defining moment in your past, maybe someone you looked up to uh, that inspired you to become a physician? Hard to point down just one, you know, moment, but I'd say one that really stuck out with me while I was on an AP bio uh, field trip in high school to one of our local med schools where we went to their cadaver lab. And it was quite the experience uh, being able to hold, you know, human brain Mm -hmm. in your hands, gloved, obviously, but just kind of how, you know, fascinating the human body and the experience was that was kind of where I kind of first think I remember you know being very excited about you know anatomy physiology and medicine and then it's just been a number of smaller um, events pushing me that way as well so that's a unique field trip I don't know if I ever (laughs) went on one like that yeah it was yeah very lucky that's really cool um so why did you choose internal medicine as a specialization? Yeah, so internal medicine, in my mind, was kind of the prototypical, you know, is there a doctor, you know, in the house or on the flight, mm-hmm. where they cover really the wide spectrum of, you know, adult diseases. And so there is so much breadth there, but there is also the depth that, you know, me personally, I really enjoy. So I like knowing, you know, about a lot of things. I mm-hmm. like learning and that was going to be one field that kind of kept me always uh, interested and involved, right. as opposed to some of the other more specialties, which I still love, but mm-hmm. I don't want to give up that breadth. Sure. The, the ability to kind of be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of internal medicine specialists are also primary care physicians because of how much they cover. So, um, but let's get into the topic at hand. Uh, diabetes, as I said, is a major epidemic uh, facing not just Houston County, but the world at large. Uh, according to the CDC in 2019, 37.3 million Americans, or 11.3% of the population, had diabetes. Nearly 1.9 million Americans have type 1, uh, including about uh, 244,000 children and adolescents. And of that 37.3 million adults with diabetes, million were diagnosed and 8.5 million were undiagnosed. 
Out of those individuals, 29.2% are 65 or older, which relate, which equates rather to 15.9 million seniors, and that includes diagnosed and undiagnosed seniors. Unfortunately, 1.4 million Americans are diagnosed with diabetes every year, and that number only seems to be increasing as the years go on. So Dr. Carroll, uh, with that in mind, with those figures kind of put in front of us, uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, what exactly is diabetes? So diabetes is kind of a spectrum of diseases, but the gist is you're having a difficult time regulating your insulin levels, which helps to regulate blood sugar. So how you absorb and digest all the foods that you eat. When you have diabetes, you either become resistant to it. So with the case of type 2 diabetes, where you're just not as receptive, or type 1, where you're just not producing enough, and usually um, you need to be supplemented with insulin. But it's a disorder of how you regulate sugars, mostly. Okay. Um, so what are some of the common symptoms of diabetes? Yeah, so with diabetes can be a few things, mostly the little kind of non-specific uh, insidious for when we're most concerned, hyperglycemia, which is when your sugar is too high, things that are very common is feeling very thirsty all the time. So really thirsty, urinating a whole lot as well, maybe feeling at hungry. So you're kind of thirsty, hungry, and uh, urinating a lot. And then also just nonspecific, you feel tired, fatigued, kind of just general malaise or, you know, uh, weakness, pains. Those are kind of typical for that high blood sugar. The opposite one that's too low you can have some similar symptoms with just kind of the fatigue, but more so you're going to be feeling maybe cold or clammy where you just feel sweaty. You're lightheaded, maybe shaky, very weak. And, you know, sometimes some nausea, those are with both of them, but that spectrum, it's kind of more, you're just, you're not feeling great. And it's kind of a little bit more of a, you know, an acute issue. Any um, unusual symptoms that you've ever seen that have been related to diabetes? Um, I mean, there's definitely, you know, always a spectrum. So mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, fairly often it's kind of the typical stuff. The other thing to add on, since this will be important later especially with the hyperglycemia when it's really high, you can have unintentional weight loss. Okay. And so we'll, you know, talk later that, you know, diabetes and weight are definitely related. And so when you start losing weight, you go, oh, great, I'm heading in the right direction. But sure. in, rea in reality, it's mostly because your body is kind of starting to metabolize itself and you're not able to absorb and metabolize those sugars properly. So if you're having some unintentional weight loss, you know, and those thirst, feeling hungry, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. those should be starting to kind of prick your ears up that, you know, okay, maybe I need to you know, okay. talk to my doctor. So if you're not trying to lose weight, but you're losing weight, yeah, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not normal. Um, what are um, some common risk factors for diabetes? Yeah. So most of these are going to be for type 2 diabetes, which is about 90 to 95 percent, you know, based on your numbers. Type 1, smaller percentage, type uh, 5 to 10 percent, and then some gestational. But for type 2 diabetes, big risk factors are age. So, you know, usually about 45 or older, it's going to increase your risk. Other are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, poor diet, and physical inactivity or sedentary lifestyle. These are all big risk factors. 
uh, for a lot of chronic lifestyle related diseases, but diabetes we'll kind of talk about um, more so. And um, family history, also important too. So those are some really big kind of risk factors that you can see that are some are modifiable. We can you know make changes, others not so much. Can't really change our age or you know our hereditary history. So sure. So you know, considering those common symptoms, those risk factors, I come in with you know a handful of those or all of those or only a few of those. You're suspecting diabetes. What, from a clinical perspective, uh, do you do to reach that final diagnosis of diabetes? Yeah. So really it kind of depends on that individual patient's presentation. So if they're having those kind of symptoms of the overt hyperglycemia where they're really high and you check just a regular blood sugar, even a finger stick or from a lab and it's high, the diagnosis is made usually about, you know, above 200 or so for that random okay. glucose. Now, more typically, we're probably familiar with the hemoglobin A1C, okay, which is the, you know, glycosylated amount of hemoglobin, which is just mean how much sugar has been attached to a red blood cell. And then you check that and it tells you what the blood sugar has been looking like for the last three months or so, which is about the lifespan of a red blood cell. So that's really the kind of nice typical one that we do, but there's many different ways to kind of confirm, you know, with, especially like in the gestational side with pregnancy, uh, checking oral glucose tolerances where they basically eat a sugary syrup and then you just get their blood sugars checked after several hours in between, which is difficult and inconvenient mm -hmm. for most. So sure. with our newer, you know, A1Cs and everything, we're trying to kind of go more toward that, right? right. Whatever's convenient for the patient to get them in, to get these uh, tests and diagnoses made is going to be kind of the best, but. Right. Absolutely. Uh, definitely whatever it's going to work best with your patient. Obviously yeah. it's a shifting sort of yeah. thing. Uh, so what are the different types of diabetes? Yeah. So we kind of alluded a little bit, main one type two, and that's like I said, 90 to 95%. And that's that progressive resistance with insulin. So your body's making it, making the proper amount, but you're just not really listening to the signals as much anymore. Type one is more usually autoimmune and you're not producing enough insulin. So you just don't make as much as you need. And that can vary as well how sure. much, you know. And then there's gestational, which is the one that occurs during pregnancy. And then there are also about 12 other different types, but not as important. Those are the three main ones. Type two is kind of your bread and butter of what most people are going to be familiar with and talking about. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So there's 12 different types in total. <laughs> About, yeah. That's interesting. And That's they're interesting. they're mostly subsets of okay. kind of type one, type two, and refers to what the underlying etiology, if there was um, uh, a common one that I like is type three C, mm -hmm. meaning people who have had issues with their pancreas specifically, uh, which is the hormone or the organ that makes and produces insulin. So someone who has maybe pancreatic cancer or chronic pancreatitis, where there's damage and scarring to that pancreas, or eventually a surgery where they remove part of it, then they're going to develop, or most likely will develop, you know, diabetes. And so it's not quite a, you know, progressive resistance or, a, right. you know, non-production. It's this, you've kind of taken away that organ. So it's just like this, like I said, slightly different subset, mm -hmm. more so 
nuanced for you know a specialist right. but uh, it is just kind of good to keep in mind that the picture can you know on presentation can maybe it's hard to dis- decide whether it's type 1 or type 2 because sure. as it's getting more and more common we're seeing you know with childhood obesity with obesity in general we're seeing type 2 uh, diagnoses in the much younger population. And we're also seeing some autoimmune type one in the older population. Traditionally, you thought type one was juvenile, mm-hmm. type two adult onset, but that's not really the case anymore with what we've been seeing. So, you know, on that initial diagnosis, it can be a little bit difficult to uh, decide. So, just being aware of you know reassessing is important. Sure, and that's you know part of why I love doing this podcast is. You know, obviously, we don't want to go into the nitty gritty of of the clinical side of things. It's really only important for the public to know about the two major ones so Mm -hmm. they know kind of where they're at. But knowing that diabetes is a nuanced thing that is very individualistic and depends on the patient and where they're at is important to know just because it is an evolution. It is a disease that many people live with their entire lives. Um, Sometimes they're able to treat it to a point where they no longer have to be on medications mm-hmm. or things like that. But typically it's something that is going to move with you through your life. So knowing that side of it, at least knowing that doctors are constantly looking at individual minutiae about it is very helpful, I think, to our listeners. So thank you for that little bit of information. Mm-hmm. I think that was very informative. So you kind of talked about it's difficult to differentiate between the types of uh, diabetes in terms of diagnosis. Um is there a way to differentiate like definitively between type one and type two? Yeah. So, I mean, it, and I, it's not quite difficult overall. It's just on that initial presentation, right? If they're, you know, that sugar's really high, they're having a lot of those other complaints and issues that we talked about. It's not necessarily as important to go, okay, is this type one, type two? It doesn't change management in that short term. But uh, yes, as far as definitive diagnosis, you know, determining if it's you know more type one, there's definitely some autoimmune or antibodies that you can check for that are common that result in kind of that decreased uh, insulin production. Okay. So that's a typical one that you mm-hmm. check. You just check the antibodies. Gotcha. But otherwise, most of the time, if you have kind of all those risk factors we talked about and, you know, the picture is pretty consistent, you don't need to kind of go down that rabbit hole. When you do is when maybe things aren't, acting as you'd expect them to. Maybe there's something else going on here, you know, uh, but most of the time, yeah, you kind of have a good idea, but we definitely can kind of rule that out or determine which one it is. So when you reach the diagnosis, what are the treatment plans for type one and type two diabetes? As you said, they're, they're similar. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are some common medications? Yeah. So type one, it's pretty much, they need insulin. And how much insulin, it varies. That is, you know, better left to kind of endocrinologist. Not always the case, but mostly we'll kind of talk just type 2 and prediabetes, since that is kind of the majority of it. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, my, you know, first step is, you know, kind of full risk assessment. Where is this patient at as far as how many of those risk factors they have? what other complications they're experiencing, what symptoms they have, what's their affinity to taking medication or not, right? But for me personally, I really, really kind of want to push lifestyle 
and prevention, right? Mm-hmm. So the more we can prevent that progression from prediabetes to diabetes, all the better. You know, going back to your numbers, yeah, it's about 11% of the po- uh, population of the U.S. has diabetes, mm-hmm. but over one-third of the population has prediabetes. Sure. And, you know, one in five don't know that they have diabetes, but eight in 10 don't know that they have prediabetes. Sure. So the likelihood of someone having prediabetes is pretty high, and working to prevent that progression is really going to be that first step. Uh, so lifestyle, huge one. We can kind of go over that in more detail because I think mm-hmm. that's so important and oftentimes kind of overlooked sure. by a lot of uh, other providers because, you know, realistically, we don't necessarily get all that much training on that. Mm-hmm. You know, we get the the gist of it. We know we need to diet, exercise. We need to do this stuff. But then, you know, as far as the counseling goes with your patient, we tell them, you know, the gist of that. They don't have the same training that we do that, you know, what sure. seems you know, implied or assumed on our side doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be for that patient as well. So really trying to break that down into more digestible and understandable uh, goals and expectations for them, I think is super helpful. Yeah. Um, So that's really where me, you know, where I start. But then as far as medications, really the common one, metformin, very Mm -hmm. typical uh, first line agent. Sure. Especially for prediabetes can definitely help uh, the progression to diabetes and then when we get into you know other diabetic treatments, there's a lot of newer medications, the you know SGLT2 inhibitors, so things like Barsega, Jardians. You know you see the news mm-hmm. articles all the time. The big ones that most people are probably familiar with are the GLP-1 injectable medications, things like Ozempic and Trulicity, right? Which have been you know kind of co-opted now for you know weight loss specifically sure. which again goes hand in hand with diabetes often so gotcha mm-hmm. um so let's talk a little bit about prediabetes since you brought it up um what exactly is prediabetes it is it, it is a is it a disease state or is it just a set of symptoms or a set of um conditions in the body what exactly is it so yes yes and no it's a you know yes it's a disease state it's basically the early signs of you know diabetes generally type 2 so you might have some symptoms associated but generally they're going to probably be more asymptomatic okay they're not going to have those overt hyperglycemias or those overt hyperglycemia mm-hmm. type symptoms because it's not that high yet it's just a little bit high you know just higher than normal not quite to that threshold where you're getting a lot of those kind of uncomfortable sensations, but, you know, just in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's just kind of that progression. So it's a little bit of abnormal glucose over a long period of time. And then you get that kind of um, eventual progression and disease state. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a common uh, term that's mm-hmm. heard when you talk about prediabetes, or at least the world of prediabetes um, it's often used interchangeably. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but metabolic syndrome. Um, what exactly is that and how does it lead to diabetes? So metabolic syndrome related, not quite the same, uh, but very similar. So more so related with prediabetes. Metabolic syndrome is a you know complex constellation of other disorders and symptoms, namely having high cholesterol, having excess weight, especially around the midsection. When we talk about risk factors and weight, the central obesity is a much higher risk than kind of overall peripheral obesity, kind of in the extremities and things. 
So having that high central obesity, high cholesterol, hypertension, those sorts of things, that is kind of what we call metabolic syndrome. And then also some impaired glucose metabolism, basically the prediabetes. So it's kind of a feature of its Mm -hmm. own separate where the prediabetes is a feature of kind of that metabolic syndrome. And as we've kind of said, that is just all of those risk factors that then will eventually precipitate, you know, the progression of, you know, prediabetes and metabolic syndrome to diabetes. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kind of are the processes for uh, diagnosing and treating metabolic syndrome and prediabetes? I'm guessing it's, um, you know, finding those same kind of symptoms that you would notice in, in, um, you know, anything, as you said, hypertension and all those things and kind of uh, recognizing the constellation. Yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely a little bit of that. Ultimately, I think it comes down to just making sure you're focusing and kind of trying to pay attention to your own health, right? Being your own advocate. Oftentimes what happens is patients just aren't going to the doctor for, you know, even years at a time Mm -hmm. where all of those little complaints that they're maybe experiencing just kind of start building up. And then it gets to a point where, Hey doc, I'm just, all right, I'm not feeling great. And it's been, you know, years where they've kind of had this slow transition. You don't quite notice it as much. You kind of just get used to feeling tired and, you, and weak and fatigued all the time. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, I'm just getting older when in fact, maybe it's something else going on. Sure. So I'd really encourage, you know, patients to try and prioritize their own health a little bit. Sure. And, you know, if you haven't been to the doctor in a while, gotten any labs, maybe it's time to get, you know, um, that checked out, especially if you have maybe those risk factors or have been told, you know, you've had those risk factors like high blood pressure or, you know, high cholesterol or maybe a little bit overweight mm-hmm. or have, you know, family history. Those are all things that maybe should push you to be a little bit more proactive with it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I want to get into kind of frequently asked questions. Uh, but before I do, I kind of want to drill in on what you were talking about before about prevention. Mm-hmm. So what are some major steps that people can take in terms of lifestyle changes, maybe diet changes, things like that to uh, help prevent diabetes and also help, you know, if they already have a diagnosis, treat their diabetes holistically in a way that can, you know, maybe prevent necessary medications down the road. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, huge advocate for lifestyle and really is kind of the foundation. I love medications. They have their purposes, uh, but I understand that not everyone is, you know, doesn't want to be on a whole bunch of medications and that's okay. But having both of those kind of tools in your tool belt are really important. Like I said, even if we start medications, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing those foundational lifestyle things as well. So as far as the prevention and even treatment and, you know, reversal, lifestyle is kind of right there. So the CDC has some great information on their website, and there's some other great resources that you can look into as far as a patient goes in the Diabetes Prevention Program. This is a national program, you know, throughout House and Here has their own with Educare. They have uh, many different classes, but it basically gives patients the tools and the power to start taking their life, you know, back in their hands. And so, you know, education is super important, but they'll go through all of that same stuff. So really trying to encourage patients to be 
on that mm -hmm. proactive side and look into what does my community have for me. And like I said, thankfully, Housen has that resource available. Oftentimes, that's always covered by insurance for the most part, plus or minus, which is nice. So something that doesn't cost the patient anything is really great. But kind of going over some brief stuff, like I said, there's a lot in here mm -hmm. that I think you can really dive into, and that's important. A lot of resources online, but the big overview is, you know, diet, physical activity, sleep, stress reduction, community. So what I call the pillars of health, right? And there's different pillars for different people, mm -hmm. but the big ones are sleep, physical activity, and diet, okay? For me, for me personally, but they're all important. Sleep, I think, is super overlooked by a lot of people, mm. especially in our culture with the kind of rise and grind. Let's get to it. The recommendations are seven to nine hours for most. Oftentimes, people are getting much less than that, mm. you know, six, five, four. And sometimes they're kind of proud about that. Oh, I do great on, you know, this four to six hours. And it's like, sure. well, you maybe not, right? You might be able to do a whole lot better. Uh, so I'd say really starting to prioritize that sleep. And not being able to sleep is not the same as not letting or allowing yourself to sleep. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, we just don't prioritize it, right? right? We stay up past our bedtimes. We're, you know, doing other things. Mm -hmm. We're not consistent. And so, you know, if you do have, a, you know, trouble sleeping, staying asleep, falling asleep, that kind of stuff, after, you know, incorporating what we call some sleep hygiene, which is, again, behavioral techniques, healthy habits for promoting good sleep, then that's when, yeah, you should be talking to your, you know, sure. doctor, see if there's something else that's going on. But usually it's just that we need to prioritize it a little bit more. Yeah. Trying to get I know I'm guilty of not prioritizing sleep and yeah. sleeping less than I should. Mm -hmm. So I and every, like... you know, and every now and again, yeah, it's, it's not the biggest thing, but when mm -hmm. it becomes this chronic, we're doing it for months to years at a time. That is, you know, there's no system in the body that's in, not enhanced by sleep. So when you're not getting enough of it, there's mm -hmm. nothing that's not then impaired by your lack of it. So sleep is a really important one. Definitely um, for most, but the other things are diet and the physical activity. So diet, we talk about realistically, the best diet is going to be the one that the patient can stick with for life, mm -hmm. right? These are lifestyle changes. What we don't want to have happen is we have these short-term changes, which can get short-term results, but when things then get stressful or difficult within, you know, life. Life is very stressful and problematic. We usually resort back to whatever our older habits were. And that's where a lot of that yo-yo dieting comes from, right? We right. make these changes. We make these New Year's resolutions. We hit it hard for maybe a couple of months. And then maybe we're not seeing the results that we want or things start getting, you know, busy at work. We're not getting enough sleep, getting tired. And then we go back to where we were and now we're gaining all that weight we lost and maybe some extra, mm -hmm. you know, along with it. So the best diet is going to be the one they can stick with long term. It's all about small steps that you can keep consistently. Now, that's not to say that we don't have data to suggest that some diets are better than others. Mm -hmm. uh, namely, things like the Mediterranean diet, DASH diet, which is dietary approaches to stop hypertension, the anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. Those are all... Uh, very, they have great data to suggest that sure. improves morbidity, mortality, and overall longevity. But we can have the best diet in the world if it's not going to be something the patient can follow. Sure, doesn't really matter. The general principle behind those those uh, diets is 
less processed junk, mm-hmm. more real food. So sure. me personally, I kind of like to break it down into a, a very simple approach where you're uh, breaking things into foods and not foods. Mm-hmm. And so the not foods are all the things that look like food, taste like food, not quite really food. Right. So the heavily processed products and the refined sugar. So mm-hmm. think like the middle of the grocery store, think fast foods, think sure. convenience store items, mm-hmm. things that are just very available, but you know, you can't really recognize maybe what the original material was, where it came from. Right. So that is the kind of best way to approach it because it allows that healthiest relationship with mm-hmm. food. Because if I, if you start a diet or anyone tells you to start a diet and they say, don't eat this one food, mm-hmm. what's the only food you're thinking about eating? That now? one food. That yeah. one food. <laughs> and so instead, when you break it this way, it's, I'm just not eating not foods and I'm eating whatever I want of mm-hmm. actual food. And then from there, it's, you know, portions, variety, all that good stuff. Right. But that, like I said, is the simplest way to kind of start mm-hmm. with things. Because all of those food products, you know, the food-like products, they're not designed to make you feel satisfied. They're mm-hmm. designed to make you want them more, right? Right. That's, that's the, the name of the game. Now, that's not necessarily a nefarious or evil thing that food corporations and science is doing. It's just that that's what pleases us. That's what makes us get those dopamine rewards where we get those cravings. So sure. they're just kind of appealing to the market, but mm-hmm. doesn't mean we have to follow along with it. So the more you can break up that cycle, the better it's going to be. Because uh, like I said, it's going to make you crave more and more. Now, on the plus side, as you kind of cut that back and stop eating those things, your body can readjust and those cravings decrease. Because oftentimes that's what patients complain about a lot. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm, you know, I'm voraciously hungry. I'm always eating. I'm not, even when I'm not, I'm bored. Like it's that boredom eating. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes a lot is that related to sleep. So how sleep can impact, you know, your diet and everything. It decreases your impulse control. It increases your appetite. It makes you crave those foods that are higher in fat, sugar, and salt because they hit all those good reward systems. And then it gives you less food satisfaction. So again, kind of that you're, you're eating out of boredom where you're just, I'm not really hungry. I already had food, but I'm here at the fridge again. Oftentimes mm-hmm. it's because we're not having enough sleep. Sure. That, you know, those, those calories can be three, 400 extra calories without even wanting right. to or trying. So it definitely adds up. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, you know, the diet and everything, as you cut that down and specifically like sugary beverages. So mm-hmm. what we call kind of empty calories, those can definitely add up really quickly, especially if you have pre-diabetes or diabetes, you already right. have an issue regulating sugar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, trying to just cut out those things is going to be the best first step. Now I say it's simple, but it's not easy right? because availability and convenience is why mm-hmm. those are such, you know, heavy hitters right. in our culture today because mm-hmm. they're everywhere. It's yeah. what we're serving, you know, to our kids and the schools. It's what we're serving in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Obviously not everywhere. We're doing a great job, you know, where we can, but it's just, it's everywhere. Right. And healthy food is not always the cheapest. Sure. And I understand that. And there's always things to keep in mind, you know, food deserts mm-hmm. and access. It's really, that's where a lot of those barriers come from. So you have to de- 
you know, determine for that patient mm-hmm. and all your patients or friends and family, what the barriers are to that lifestyle, to that living and try and make the changes that you sure. can, you know, benefit from, right? You don't have to do all of it. Even one change over the long term mm-hmm. can make a big difference. Yeah. And, um, you know, kind of speaking quickly on, on weight loss, going on diets and, and doing these kinds of things, which is related to diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming from my own weight loss journey and talking about changing your diet, a lot of it is going to come down to willpower. Eventually, you are going to come up against um, the need for willpower. Um, you know, the body, you know, doing a little research on my own, the body produces a chemical called leptin. And, uh, you know, the smaller you are, the less you weigh the hungrier you get because of leptin, because the body produces more leptin when you have less, uh, you know, less fat in your body. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a constant uphill battle and the uphill battle becomes harder as you're losing weight. So, you know, one of the things that people come to me and ask me, well, how'd you lose all this weight? First step, get your mind right. You've got to have the mindset because without the mindset, you can't have the willpower. Without the willpower, you're not going to be able to stick to it. And like you said, it's a lifestyle change. So it's a decision of being, this is how I'm going to be. This is not something I'm doing temporarily. Yeah. And I do want to make a small correction uh, to that idea of willpower. I Mm -hmm. do definitely agree that mindset Mm -hmm. and having expectations and goals is very important, right? You Mm -hmm. need to know why you're wanting to make these changes and what is important to you. But I do want to kind of caution uh, yourself and others, because this is mm-hmm. what happens is, you know, diabetes, obesity, these aren't willpower diseases. They mm-hmm. aren't disease, sure. you know, a disease of will, not having enough willpower. There is, you know, underlying physiology and you brought up, you know, leptin, there's ghrelin, which makes you hungry all the time that play in part, you know, people who are overweight or obese aren't there because they don't have the willpower, you know, right. which I know that is a cultural Mm -hmm. systemic thought that happens, you know, Oh, they did this to themselves. You know, you kind of notice that obesity is really only the, the only disease that people kind of get uh, made fun of for having, you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't tease your alcoholics. You don't tease the people with high blood pressure. Oh, you know that, Oh, you did this to yourself. Mm -hmm. We are more on, you know, more understanding. And that was kind of that whole mind shift of treating obesity as a chronic medical condition, which it is. Now, like I said, mindset, all of that is definitely important, but knowing that, you know, there's things at play that are outside of that control. And that's why sometimes the medications have a place and a role to play. Because again, not no amount of willpower can make you beat, mm-hmm. you know, the, the physiology of your body or at least makes it very, very difficult. And so those medications, when appropriate, help make that consistency, you know, more available. Absolutely. And I totally agree. And, I, yeah. and, and thank you for adding that, because yeah. that is absolutely true. Uh, diabetes, you know, and, and often, you know, obesity is because of some underlying medical condition you have. It's not necessarily your fault. It, it can be something that is an underlying problem. And should be treated like that. And I, so I appreciate you for saying that. That's yeah. very insightful. Thank you. Um, so I know many of our listeners out there are already facing a diabetes diagnosis. Uh, the vast majority are probably dealing with type 2 uh, just because of the nature of how diabetes works and the statistics that mm-hmm. we spoke about earlier. But I'm sure there are some with type 1 out there as well. Um, so let's start by assuming 
you ran my blood work. I came back and I have type two diabetes. Um, Dr. Carroll can type two diabetes go away if my blood sugar returns to normal levels, am I healthy or do I still have diabetes? So it's a great question. And it's a little bit of a semantic one at the end, meaning that uh, it's a thing that we're still kind of arguing. Now, to answer your first question, absolutely. You know, whether you have the type one, type two diagnosis, you get started on medications you know, what is my prognosis? What's that future look like? Is it something that I can reverse? Can I, you know, get off these medications? And generally speaking, yes, the answer is yes. And that goes to the lifestyle foundational changes. Now, that takes time, right? Lifestyle changes is a slow process. And our goal, especially in that initial period, is getting your risk down low quickly and managing those symptoms that are making you feel uncomfortable and, you know, not living to your full potential. So I definitely think kind of both of those, you know, starting the medication straight out and then counseling on the lifestyle and building up those healthy habits. And then as you continue to make, you know, these really great lifestyle changes, you definitely can see a, you know, a reversal or a decreased dependence of those medications and sometimes a reversal of the diabetes. And let's say, yeah, you get down to that range where you're now in the more normal levels. Do you still have diabetes or not? I like to have that mindset of, yes, you just still have diabetes because you still have that risk factor, that potential to, if you stopped those lifestyle changes, it's going to happen again. And that's why we want to say, that's why we want people to be consistent with them because it's not a short-term change that we're doing just to get down and now it's all better. It's these are, this is the new life that I'm going to be having that will allow me to stay off these medications and live a very long, healthy, prosperous life. But I think as a, uh, just to clarify and reduce any confusion I think it's best to just stick with saying, yes, I still have diabetes, but it's managed with lifestyle or so. Because okay. that can definitely factor in later on. Let's say it's been five, 10 years down the line, and maybe your medical records don't necessarily show that anymore, and you kind mm -hmm. of forgot about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and things go wrong. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have that information and go, okay, yeah, yeah, we have that potential risk, but we're managing it really well without, you know, these medications or whatnot. So like I said, a little bit of a semantic. Some people right. say, yeah, no, you don't have diabetes anymore. Uh, but others, I think it's best to just say yes, but that you're not, you know, you're treating it with lifestyle, sure. which is a you know goal for all of us. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so will I need to take insulin if I have type two diabetes? So not always. Some, there are insulin uh, dependent or patients with type two diabetes that, you know, will eventually require insulin. And it really just depends on their particular situation. Oftentimes it's because they're not able to, you know, really maintain those lifestyle changes as well as maybe they would like for whatever reason, you know, they are not able to be physically active because of pain or immobility, you know, the diet, like I said, you know, they just have no access to it. And so, you know, they sometimes just have that progressive worsening and eventually even with some of the medications they might need, you know, some of that insulin, but with a lot of the newer ones, we're seeing that we can, you know, probably try and get some of these patients off 
the insulin with those other, you know, weekly injectable and oral medications. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, that's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do have to take insulin, um, well, I have to take it for the rest of my life. So kind of same thing. It really mm-hmm. just depends. Uh, for type one, absolutely. You're always going to need insulin. Uh, but for type two, not always. So like mm-hmm. I said, sometimes patients uh, get started on insulin straight out and maybe never even tried some of the orals because they were having those you know, overt symptoms of the high blood sugar. So we wanted to bring it down so quickly. And they just got started on insulin and then responded well. And then they just stayed on it for mm-hmm. years. And I've had that before, especially as we get older and older, you know, having that reassessment of, okay, can we maybe make some changes or can we get off of this? Because insulin is not always the most convenient thing either, right? right? Depending on how you have to take it, whether it's a once a day mm-hmm. long acting or a multiple times a day, you know, short acting with meals and things. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely an inconvenience. Sure. So the more, for me personally, the more I can get patients off insulin, all the better. And you can do that generally with some of the newer medications, but then also those lifestyles. So. Right. Um, if I eat right and eliminate sugary foods from my diet, um, can I completely stop taking my diabetes medications? As you said, you get down to those normal blood sugar levels. You can come off those medications on a regular basis. So again, always individualize this towards mm-hmm. the patient. But generally, most will be able to, yes. So what I counsel my patients on anytime we start a medication is, hey, even though we're starting this, doesn't necessarily mean we have to be on it forever. It may be the case, but we always want to reassess. And, you know, the more we can kind of try and come off this, the better. But like I said, it's really just going to be doubling down on changing that lifestyle and uh, keeping it in mind because, again, Sometimes it just years down the road, you have a lapse and mm-hmm. kind of slowly happens again. And then, hey, we might need to be back on this. So. Gotcha. Um, so do I need to monitor my blood sugar when I have type 2 diabetes? Keeping in mind that type 1 typically does have to monitor their blood sugar on a regular basis. And uh, what options are there for me to monitor this? So it depends. Again, mm-hmm. a lot of depends sure. for this. But yes, there are some type two diabetics that need to monitor their blood sugar more regularly, similar to like a type one. And those are definitely going to be the ones who are on insulin or, you know, mm-hmm. insulin like medications. Generally, I'd say the least amount that I need to make my patient check their blood sugars, the, the better. Cause again, mm-hmm. it's not a convenient thing having to you know, stick your finger, do all that kind of stuff. It's hurts, causes scarring over years. Uh, so we try to avoid it if we can, but generally if you're on oral medications and maybe that injectable, you know, a weekly injectable, probably don't need to check your blood sugar regularly. You can check it, you know, occasionally here or there in the mornings, fasting, or if you're feeling like, hey, I'm not, I don't feel well, let me check to see if it's high or mm-hmm. let me check to see if it's low. I think those are uh, important to have. But as far as like a regular monitoring, I don't really, you know, tell my patients they need to do that in most mm-hmm. cases. Now, if they're on insulin, as a type two or anything, yeah, we need to you know check that a little bit more regularly. But okay. uh, the more the less frequent we can do it, you know, happier everyone is. Sure. Now, as far as options, typical one is it's always going to just be the finger stick. That's your kind of your go to mm-hmm. standard. But there are a lot of other new continuous glucose monitors mm-hmm. coming out. Freestyle Libre, Dexcom are kind of the big two brands, right. which are a nice change. Definitely for your type ones, it's a monitor that you can put like in your arm. 
And you can wear it for usually about 14 days at a time. During that time, you don't have to stick your finger. And you can see, as its name implies, you know, continuous levels of your glucose. So that is very helpful. Now, I would like to see that availability and that access improve so that type twos or those with just, you know, prediabetes even who want to know, you know, what their blood sugars are looking like mm-hmm. can get that access and that availability, you know, mm-hmm. through insurance eventually. Uh, because it is very important information sometimes to see that real world change of, okay, I just had some cake or I just had a soda. Mm-hmm. What's my blood sugar doing? Sure. Right. And so that, again, gives that patient more information, more power to know, okay, how is my body personally reacting to the food that I put in, right? Because we talked about nutrition is really a vital step to our overall health. And again, that direct visual feedback is Mm -hmm. really, really important and helpful, I think, for a lot of those patients. Sure. Totally agree. I would love to see uh, CGMs be more be more readily accessible to people. Cause I, I agree with you. I think that yeah. real world experience of, I just had something that I shouldn't have. What's that doing to my body is mm-hmm. probably very eye opening for a lot of people. So yeah. um, if I have any children or I already have children, are they at risk for developing diabetes if I have type two? So a little bit, you know, we talked about risk factors, family history is still uh, relevant for type two. A lot of that has to probably do multifactorial. So how, you know, you were raised, what environment, what cultural background you have Mm -hmm. is going to be continuing on. So if your parents have diabetes and they got that way because of, you know, eating a particular subset of food, not being physically active, uh, all those other risk factors we talked about, well, then that's going to translate down to the kids as well, right? How Mm -hmm. often is the kid going to be preparing their own meal that's different from their parents or going out and doing activities without their parents' supervision. Right. So there's probably some combination of that, you know, both hereditary aspect, but also Mm -hmm. the environmental actions that accompany that as Mm -hmm. well. So definitely, you know, a little bit higher risk, but, you know, not always a, you know, one-to-one definitive. Right. Maybe your child is rebellious against you. A lot of children are like that. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the one thing you want them to be rebellious about is, is lifestyle changes mm-hmm. that yeah. keep them from that. Yep. Um, so uh, same question for type type one. Are there any risks uh, that my children are going to um, end up with type one diabetes? Yeah. So type one is usually a little bit more hereditary than the type two. So, mm-hmm. yes, there is a, a higher risk for your child being type one um, or having any. so. Type 1 or autoimmune diseases generally kind of have a hereditary pattern. So, Mm -hmm. and they run in packs. So, if you have one autoimmune disease, you may have risks for others. Sure. Diabetes is a common one, and celiac, where you can't, you know, uh, process gluten Mm -hmm. or you have an allergy to it. Not to be confused with just that gluten intolerance, which is kind of that more mild version of this, is more. And they're having actual, you know, tissue damage and things because of that. Mm-hmm. But that's another autoimmune. They run in, you know, together. Thyroid is another autoimmune mm-hmm. disease that can be uh, a feature of that. So, yes, the both hereditary aspect of it, but then also risk for some other diseases and disorders sometimes too. Understood. Well, I'd like to thank you again, doctor, for coming on and talking to me today uh, about this very important topic. Um, And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in. 
I hope you found this episode fun and informative. I certainly enjoyed talking to him and learning all about this and, and finding out things that I didn't know about diabetes. Uh, if you'd like more information on diabetes prevention and care, you can visit the CDC website for all of their resources on diabetes. There will be links in the YouTube description below. Uh, if you think you might be dealing with diabetes, need a diagnosis, or you're just looking for a great primary care or internal medicine physician, you can give Dr. Carroll a call at Houston Internal Medicine Associates. Their phone number is 478-352-8880. And uh, remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll be able to find new episodes of Hashtag Houston HealthCast there before anywhere else. And if you prefer listening on another podcast medium, we certainly have them. Uh, you can find those linked in the description below as well. Dr. Carroll, any parting words you'd like to share? I just want to thank you for allowing me on this podcast and talk about something I'm really passionate about. Uh, just from personal experience, lifestyle has you know changed my life as well and kind of brought me here. So I just I really love sharing that passion mm -hmm. and you know hope others can you know make the same changes or similar changes that then benefit their lives you know moving forward. So I really thank you for that. Absolutely, yeah, and you're welcome on the show anytime. Uh, again, thank you all for listening and remember to stay hashtag Houston healthy. Thank you.